Let me pray for our time and we'll uh, jump into Luke 14. And Father, thank you for um, your grace and your mercy. Um, we praise you for your sovereignty, that you're trustworthy, you are omniscient, you're eternal, uh, uh, your attributes just go on and on, and we are in awe of you. Uh, Father, I thank you for your word and um, that you've given us this truth to uh, to transform us and glorify you. And I pray that um, that's what would happen as we study now. And Father, the circumstances of this, of this morning haven't caught you off guard. Um, you knew all about them uh, from the beginning of time. And we pray that you would guide us through um, whatever trials we're facing. In uh, Christ's name we pray. Amen. Luke 14. So, if you remember, um, Jesus had just healed a woman on the Sabbath. She had a, a demon possession that caused her back to to bother her for 18 years. And he caught flack for doing it on the Sabbath. So then another Sabbath comes up here in Luke 14. So it's one Sabbath when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. So what's the situation? How do you describe it? What does it sound like when it says they were watching him carefully? They're trying to catch him in something, aren't they? I mean, that's what it really looks like. And dropsy, does anybody know what dropsy is? It's... It's like lymphedema is the best way to describe it. Lymphedema is when um, a person starts to to hold fluid. And, you know, like I've seen cases of it where someone's arm was just really swollen up because of all the fluid that they were, their body was holding. And it, and it makes it difficult to do anything. Would this type of person normally have been at a, a dinner with the Pharisees? No. Their legalism would have, would have had that person separated from them. It was like, there's, there's sin in this man's life because he's, he's got this dropsy. So they would not have allowed him at the meal. So... I think it's obvious here that, you know, the Pharisees are setting Jesus up. Uh, they've probably been to their, their services at the synagogue, and they're watching him carefully to see what's going to happen with this man who has what we would call lymphedema. Um, they probably arranged the situation to, to get Jesus to break their rules. And Jesus, as I mentioned, had just healed this woman. So, and Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, 
is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. So how did he respond? He asked them this question, right? What's the answer to the question? Is it against the Mosaic law to, to heal someone on the Sabbath? No, it's not. So it's their, it's their man-made rule that they're, they're wanting to, to honor the Sabbath by not healing someone, which is, is pretty ridiculous, to be honest with you. It, but it's their legalistic rule. So they knew it wasn't prohibited by the Mosaic law, but it would violate their religious tradition. So they remained silent. I wish I had Jesus' ability to know the right question to ask. He's just incredible in the way and he does this numerous times in his ministry. He knows just the right question to ask the way to where his audience is. They, they don't know how to answer because either way, and this is an example, either way they answer, they're going to be break, either breaking their own rule or they're going to be breaking the Mosaic law. Because if they state, well, it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath, then their, their rule is, has been wrong. But if they say, no, it's, it's not right, it's unlawful, well, then that's breaking the Mosaic law and it's being unkind to this man. And so Jesus healed him and sent him away. It's the same work that he did to free this woman earlier. So he's doing this work on the Sabbath that they're, they're saying is wrong. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. So to emphasize his point, he asked them, well, what would you do if, if your son fell in a well? Or, and then he brings even their, their ox. Well, obviously they would, they would pull them out. So this is inconsistent with their tradition. So he's revealing their hypocrisy and, and selfish behavior. And, you know, I think it's ironic. They, they're using this, this person who's somebody's son who had dropsy. They're using him as, a, as bait for Jesus. They don't think anything wrong with that. So he's, he's really revealing their hypocrisy. If you think about Jesus' ministry, he had some of his harshest criticism for hypocrisy. And I, I think it's, a, it's an example that we can follow. And, you know, as someone who will not act a certain way, but they say you should, we need to 
you know, maybe not be harsh on our criticism of them, but certainly not follow their, their example. We want to avoid that kind of behavior. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So this parable seems like a kind of a, a different story to suddenly teach. So something prompted Jesus to do this, right? I think he saw how they were seated at the at the dinner table and they they wanted to be close to the host and whatnot i you know they're probably jockeying for the best seats um and these seats of seats of honor would be assigned based on rank or seniority or some type of um Something to do with their status. So it shows their pride is coming up in their actions. Because they want to be the one that that has the, the place of honor. So what action does he encourage with the parable that really contrasts what he's observed? You know, he instead of trying to get the best position, he tells them, take the lowest position. Leave room for your host to promote you. And then he states that one who is exalted will be humbled by one who humbles himself will be exalted. And humility is placing others ahead of yourself. And that's what he's really encouraging them to to practice. Our society has the same problem. You know, humility is, it's actually looked upon as a weakness almost in our society. And you know, we're encouraged to to stand up for ourselves, stand up for our rights, and get what you deserve. And, you know, humility is is when you you don't stand up for yourself, but you you place the needs of others ahead of yours. So it's something we we need to practice that. It's not going to come natural in our society, but it, it, it's the, the godly 
way to treat other people. And he also said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Jesus gives instructions that that really differ from their culture or ours. How do they differ? Who do we invite to dinner? Invite your friends, right? Uh, if they're important, you, you really, I mean, they may be the first person you put on the, your invitation list. It's just natural. But he's saying, instead of, of following that type of process, you should invite those who who can't repay the invitation, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the, the blind. This is using our resources to benefit those who need the help rather than those who would later benefit us. And I think this is a, a biblical principle that we see elsewhere in Scripture that we're to use our resources, and that's our, our time, our energy, our, whether it's financial or material things, we're to use those things to help those who need the help, not just for our own personal pleasure, Scripture is very clear that um, the possession of wealth is not an issue. It's how you handle it that's the real question. So what's the reward he's referencing? That you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Well, he's basically talking about eternal rewards. It's something implied that it's going to be a blessing at the resurrection of the just. So eternal rewards. It's and to say to have that focus, you have to have an eternal perspective. You can't just think about well this life. You have to think about well the life to come. And what am I working toward? When one of those who who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. So what's the motive of of this other guest? 
I think he's, this person is trying to, to calm the, the, the room down. He's trying to smooth things here a little bit. Um, he's seeking to resolve this conflict. I mean, you can almost picture him with his glass up giving a toast. You know, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. You know, I mean, that's, it's almost what it sounds like. And um, he was trying to offer encouragement, and it would apply to whoever was at the table. And Jesus went on, but he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. At the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So, how would they responded to his invitation? Initially, it, it's implied that they had accepted the invitation because he prepared everything for them and then sent for them. So, they had RSVP'd. Yes, we'll be there. And now when it comes time for the feast... What does he do? You know, he sends for them. But now they all have excuses for not attending. Attending the banquet wasn't their top priority. You know, if they had planned to attend this banquet, then, okay, let's put off buying the field for a week. Let's put off, you know, buying the oxen. Let's, put, let's delay our marriage a week because this banquet is an important event. No, the, the, the banquet wasn't their top priority. So now they've, they've got an excuse to not go. So the servant came and reported these things to his master, Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. How does he respond when he hears these guests won't come? He's not a happy camper, is he? You know, that he's, he's called the master of the house. He's upset that they've rescinded their acceptance. And then he calls for for his servant to invite the poor of the community and 
and even those, you know, who are, are strangers, you know, go out to the highways and compel people to come in. And then he declares that none of those who were invited would taste his banquet meal. So they can't change their mind. What are the lessons of this, of this story? Who would be those that were invited? So it would be the Jews, right? Who does he open the banquet up to? He opens it up to everybody, right? I mean, he opens it up to, to the needy, but then he goes out to the highways and, and hedges and whatnot. So it's open to everybody. Salvation is available for all people. Yeah, the Jews were invited first, but all people are invited to the banquet. Our status, you know, maybe Jewish lineage, is not, doesn't earn you a place at the banquet. You get to go to the banquet, your ticket is faith. It's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not our works, our heritage, our, our social status. It's not based on what you give, how you serve, what, whatever you're trying to do to earn God's favor. That's not what gets you into to the banquet. That's not what gets you to heaven. The ticket is faith. It's belief, it's trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's trust that what he did on the cross paid the penalty for your sin. Now, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them. So, what's the circumstances here? It's a, a large crowd had gathered, and they're accompanying or, or following Jesus. So his instruction here is toward this, a large group, a large crowd. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is going to give several lessons here. What's the first lesson? What does he mean when he says, hate your own father and mother and wife and children? I think it's really a, a priority issue is that he wants, if you're going to be a disciple of Christ, you have to give him top priority. Hatred in this context is not the same of, as what we think about when we say, you know, we hate somebody. It's an intense dislike of that person. No, that's not, it's just simply 
giving them a lower priority. An example in Scripture was Jacob. It said he loved Rachel but hated Leah. Well, did he really hate? I mean, he didn't have an intense dislike for her. It's just she she wasn't his top priority as, as a wife. I mean, he, he fathered several children through her. He didn't despise her. Obviously, he, he had affection toward Leah, but just not as much as he had toward Rachel. And that's the point that Luke is making here. Jesus should be our highest priority relationship. And he's saying even above family. Um, I want to give a, a short little illustration of, of how this played out within our family. We had an extended family member who was in an adulterous relationship and invited us to, to meet this person well, he was married, and this was not his wife. And we declined the invitation. We said, no, we're, we can't honor this. We're not going it, to, it's not right. And we were pretty severely criticized by some other family members who thought, no, you need to, you need to honor family even if they're in this kind of relationship. And, you know, I, we even cited scripture that says you're not to, you're not to um, fellowship with a, a believer who's in that type of a relationship. And, you know, they claim that that didn't apply toward family. I was like, no. Okay, where is that exception listed? So, but that's, there. it's very common for people to, to give family the highest priority. Don't get me wrong, family should be an extremely high priority, but God should be above family. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Okay, he's got another lesson here. What's the second instruction he gives them? What does it mean to bear your own cross? So what happened when a person was going to be crucified? Jesus had to do it, right? He had to carry the cross beam out to Golgotha where he was going to be crucified. It was part of the crucifixion process. They'd be forced to carry at least the cross member. I don't know if it was the whole cross. And then there'd be a sign listing their crimes. For Jesus, it was... He's king of the Jews. Like, what, what crime is that? Um, and they would often were stripped of clothing. So to come after someone is to follow in their footsteps. 
So he's saying that we're to follow his pattern of life that he set. I think the point is, is still this priority. He's saying, if you're going to make discipleship your highest priority, it's going to require a firm commitment, even in the event of suffering. He's not saying that we're all going to be crucified, but there will be times when we will suffer for our faith. And he's saying, in those times, you need to maintain your priority if you're a true disciple. You need to stay focused on Christ despite the persecution that it may bring. He goes on to say, for, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So Jesus uses a couple of illustrations here in his next instruction that he gives. Um, Here he's showing the the depth of commitment that he requires for his disciples. If you're going to have a building project, he's saying that you need to make sure you have sufficient resources to complete the project or you don't start it. And then the second is this potential battle and you commit all your forces to it. If if it's not going to be enough, then you negotiate. Like, don't go into a battle knowing that you're, you're likely to lose. You know, this, his point is discipleship requires this full commitment of our plans in submission to Jesus. He's our top priority. We're to commit everything to him. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Have you ever heard this verse taken out of context and used improperly? It's not uncommon for ministries to to use this type of verse, maybe not this particular one, but similar ones, to say, hey, Give up all you own for ministry. But First Timothy 5.8 says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So we're not required to give everything we own to the church. That's taking the, 
this verse completely out of context and misinterpreting it. I think Jesus' point is again looking at priorities. Possessions shouldn't be a higher priority than following Jesus. That's a danger. It, we all know that it's, it's called idolatry or coveting. If you, if you placing your possessions above God, that's an idol. So here he's saying that, you know, make me your top priority. If that's what discipleship is about. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So he's got lessons again. How can salt lose its saltiness? Salt is sodium chloride, right? It, it loses its saltiness when it broke, breaks down. It's no longer sodium chloride. It's something else. So that's what's happening. Um, salt can be used for many things. It's a preservative. It's actually used in the fertilizer process, which is is why it's mentioned there for the soil, it's no longer salt. Its molecular compound is is different if it's no longer salty. And his point is that he he wants his disciples to be genuine. And he's described what it means for them to be genuine. It's making him the top priority. It's being committed to him. And here he's saying that if you're not genuine, you're useless and, and you're going to be thrown away. And that's a judgment is what he's alluding to. What are some principles from this week's, from this chapter? Well, legalism and pride are, are dangerous. We saw that with those that were coming in. The Pharisees had this dinner and their pride was guiding them to where to sit and whatnot. And their legalism said they shouldn't heal this man. And what else did we learn? Well, compassion for others, especially for those who are oppressed should be routine for us. We should be using our resources to help others and not just use them for personal gain or pleasure. And then devotion to Christ as as a disciple, it should be our passion as well as our priority. I say passion because 
we shouldn't just say, well, okay, I need to have Jesus as my priority. It, it needs to be more than just an instruction that we follow. It needs to be a change in our heart to where we don't have to be reminded of it. We're doing it because we want to, because we have a passion for him. So what are ways to apply these things? Well, when are you most tempted to act arrogantly? For me, it's when I know I'm right. And I may not be right, but I sure think I know I'm right. And I'll, I'll be, I can be very argumentative or persuasive. Well, I'll be kind to myself. I'll be persuasive about, well, here's why I think I'm right. And oftentimes I didn't understand the situation completely. And then later it's like, you know, I really did come across wrong because I didn't fully understand the situation. How do you respond to those with genuine needs? We, we should seek to, to help them. It's a, it's a hard thing in our society because you don't want to be the, the enabler if they're in a bad situation because of their something that they've done. You don't want to enable that bad behavior to continue. But, but we should be seeking to help those with genuine needs. And then finally, is your passion for Christ really evident to others? It, it should be something that they can witness in your life. They should want to know what's different about you. How do you act that way despite the circumstances you're in? And then it gives you the opportunity to tell them, well, here's why I have the hope that I have. That's what apologetics is. It's a big word, but all it is is just explaining to others what Christ has done for you and the hope that that's given you. So others should see our passion for Christ so that they would want to know, hey, how can I have that same passion? Because I see the impact that it's had on you. Any comments or questions? Luke 14. Let me close our time in prayer. Father, thank you for uh, these folks and their, their desire to hear and learn about you. And I pray that uh, the lessons we've, we've learned from your word this morning would take root in our lives. That our passion for you would be evident to others. That you would reveal to us the, the opportunities we have to, to help others. 
and you would reveal to us those those circumstances that that cause us to to respond with arrogance and legalism and pride and help us to to learn from from your word and be transformed by it. We pray these things in the the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.